Phishing attacks, malware, and ransomware are just some of the major threats everyone connected to the internet faces. For companies, the stakes are especially high. Setting up secure infrastructure is difficult. Your adversary only needs to find one flaw to get in. Vancord is a private cybersecurity company based in Connecticut that was founded and built by security engineers to specialize in incident resilience and response. In this episode, I interview Jason Pouffant and Russell Jansowitz from Vancord. Jason and Russell, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Kyle. It's nice to be here. Tell me a little bit about your guys' work and how you know each other. So Vancord is an information security consulting company. Uh, Russ and I actually worked together for the past three years here, um, both founders of the company. Uh, we also worked together for, oh, I don't, I don't know, Russ. We, I feel like we always make it up 10 years at least, maybe more. Uh, it's about, yeah, about, about 10 yeah, years now. So uh, yeah, we were at the University of Connecticut before that. So uh, kind of always in that security space in peers for a long time. And what's Vancord's mission? Our focus really is sort of traditional cybersecurity or information security consulting services uh, really focused on the mid-market. You know, companies that probably have IT staff uh, likely aren't large enough to really look and hire, say, a, an information security officer or maybe even a security team. You know, we're a nice fit for, you know, sort of augmenting the security responsibilities for companies that, that just don't have them, right? So vulnerability assessments, pen testing, information security, sort of virtual information security office type services, and then kind of a variety of things around that. Well, the modern, I guess, model for a lot of companies to get going is to begin in the startup phase. Maybe you're in a garage and that sort of thing. Probably not a lot of budget and time invested in security. If you're successful, though, you need to start taking those things security, those things seriously. Uh, what's a typical maturity cycle for security look like in a company? You know, it's, it, it's really interesting. It's, it doesn't matter if the company is you know, small or a global company, a lot of times we see some of the same gaps around. So, you know, we really talk about the idea of security fundamentals and making sure you're doing some of the, what we'll call sort of basic blocking and tackling, right? Making sure you've got patches installed, basic vulnerability management, some security awareness training for employees, maybe a focus on remote access and some of the, some of the restrictions and, and sort of qualities around securing remote access. But really, you know, if people deal with those sort of fundamental things, you then start to look at building a more mature program. And maybe that's aligning to a security standard. We're starting to see a lot more now of companies looking to adhere to, say, NIST 800-171, you know, maybe the cybersecurity framework, you know, certainly things that move them in a more sort of programmatic direction. If an organization decides to adopt some standard or best practices, meet some compliance you know, restrictions, is simply being compliant with best practices enough? You know, it's interesting. We certainly spoken with clients who feel that they're building a security program solely to meet compliance requirements. In my opinion, that's probably not the best way to approach it. The reality is a lot of the times that we see that it's you know, can you do a an application pen test for us? And it's literally a compliance checkbox, right? So they may not even care that much about the results. And I think what I like to see are organizations that are making good decisions that actually reduce risk 
in a meaningful way and, and not just in a way that checks that compliance checkbox, right? Compliance and, and regulatory requirements, they have a place and I understand why they exist. And I think it, you, you clearly have to adhere to them, but ultimately doing things with the spirit of actually reducing risk is what you want to do. What's the landscape of threats organizations need to worry about today? Yeah, so there's a wide swath of threats, but I think most commonly you're going to see you're going to see the ransomware crop up very often nowadays because it's lucrative and a lot of those best practices that Jason mentioned just aren't followed and allow for that to happen. But there's also other attacks that are occurring pretty commonly. You'll see a lot of phishing to get internal access. You'll see corporate espionage. You'll see theft of information. But commonly, it's getting into that environment from some initial vector. And then we're seeing ransomware be the, the most prevalent thing that, that that's really out there now. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, we how often do we refer to ransomware as you know, like the, the security epidemic, right? Because all the incident response work that we do, like, what is it? I mean, eight or nine out of every 10 is probably ransomware based at this point. It's if not ransomware based, it's definitely on the verge to becoming ransomware. We're either saying first stage deployed or we're seeing someone preparing to infiltrate a network to perform ransomware. The um, idiot, Kyle, one of the things you talk about that maturity landscape, one of the things I hear all the time are people saying, well, you know, I don't have data or my company doesn't have data that any attacker or any cyber actor cares about. And I think that's such a misconception that, you know, they're only looking to take data that might have sort of other value, like, you know, personally identifiable information, for example. The reality is they're looking to disrupt an organization and ultimately either, you know, get that ransom paid or, you know, as a second stage, you know, sort of threaten the release of data and, and extort money from you. So, you know, every company I think is at risk to this, which is why I think it's such a serious threat. And there really are some just sort of key things that organizations can do to help protect themselves against it. More to the point, though, even even if an attacker doesn't see the value in the information, if you, the holder of that information, considers it valuable, that inherently makes it valuable to an attacker. Because as soon as you don't have access to it, it now becomes a problem. If I had a proper security setup, could I really guarantee that I'm safe from ransomware? You, so you'll never guarantee, right? I mean, that, that's the challenge of being on the defensive is you've got these organized entities that are sort of executing or orchestrating these, these, these pretty well-constructed attacks. And you're trying to, to some degree, position yourself to prevent the known while, you know, they're in the position of all of being able to update and, and find the unknown. So, you know, but, but the reality is there, there's things you can do to at least make sure that you can make yourself less of a target, patching systems routinely, uh, especially when, when vendors release patches, you want to be you know, early on that. Certainly, you want to make sure you've got good data backups. But then, and I think that really helps in the recovery phase, right? If there was actually a successful attack, you're much less likely to have to pay any kind of ransom if you've got good backups and quality data to recover from. Yeah, and I think the threat actor itself is really the determining factor. So you're not going to stop a nation state. They're going to get in at some point and their means of doing so, they'll find a way. If you are looking to not get hit with ransomware from some attack, 
make yourself less desirable than the person next to you. And that's probably going to be a big step in avoiding that because a lot of time we see, you know, basic access as the, the first point into a network and then they'll move through and they'll continue the exploitation. So obviously preventative is the best way if you can get it. What are your thoughts on strategic posturing around, okay, we think we've been compromised. What do we do now? Well, you, you certainly proactively, if you can, right, if you can have an incident response plan to some degree in place, that's always a great first step. And and candidly, most folks that we work with probably don't have a plan like that written out. Uh, you definitely want a security partner to help you sort of navigate that initial containment and then ultimately right through to recovery. The, in my opinion, one of the worst things that a, a, an impacted entity can do is identify that they've got an issue and then sprint to the restoration phase, you know, maybe restoring data or trying to bring systems back online. Because the reality is you run the risk of destroying really quality data that'll give you clarity on what the attack was and, and maybe, you know, even more importantly, what what data may have been, been impacted and which will make it much more challenging to meet your regulatory requirements, right? Notification requirements and things like that. So it's really important to have a good quality partner, uh, somebody who can help you walk through that incident response uh, so you don't make any of those sort of critical missteps. And frankly, don't land yourself in a position, you know, a week or a month from then where you're you know, reinfected and dealing with the same thing again. What are some of the common gaps you're seeing that allow people to get in? So remote access certainly is always a concern for us. Uh, you know, we, we saw a large exodus from sort of on-prem to home or remote workers you know, through this pandemic. A lot of organizations weren't fully prepared for that, and I don't think it had adequate remote access protections in place. So certainly things like port 3389 for remote desktop being opened, that's a really common attack vector that we see. Exploiting users' credentials and accessing a VPN is certainly common. Russ, maybe you want to touch on just the idea of the you know, account theft as being one of those critical areas. Yeah, so we, we see quite a bit of that. So dark web circulating credentials. So you'll have one credential used multiple places. So any, any sort of reuse, you'll see people using those to get into organizations. The, the remote access is a big part of it, for sure, the, through the VPN and through RDP. But we also see phishing, uh, any, any step to get that initial foot in the door. Lately, we saw a lot of proxy logon. So a, a recent attack against Microsoft's uh, exchange on-premises it allowed full access to that server, and then a lot of lateral movement occurred there. So we've seen those attacks. I would, I would say anything that is a recent security patch is probably being used right now to gain that initial foothold if it's externally facing. Uh, and it kind of goes back to that, that thing that Jason said about fundamentals of patching. If you're patching, you're, you're taking care of a lot of these things, and it really, you know, that, that stops that initial vector. Yeah, you know, in that same vein, and, and I don't want to overgeneralize, but you know, I think we have to be mindful of the fact that these are, uh, you know, all this all this attack activity, right? It's generally financially motivated, and so ROI is really important for these folks. If they can compromise a company that has poor patch practices, right? That's an easy target. That's going to be more attractive than somebody who has. You know, sort of even the majority of those fundamentals in place, it just makes it a little bit more difficult. And they're going to take that easiest path whenever it's practical because it yields the most money in most cases. 
Well, the pandemic has definitely pushed us towards more remote work, a lot more VPN logins and things like that, as you'd mentioned. No matter what happens in the future, it's fairly safe to say that we've had a shift towards remote. Maybe we'll shift back a little bit, but it's going to be more prevalent going forward. Have organizations adopted to that yet, or is the threat greater because this is an opportunity for new styles of work and the attackers could be ahead of the defenders? So the attackers have been ahead for the, the whole pandemic. The, the uptick in phishing emails and trusted attacks and attacks into environments, it has been a massive boon for the, for the attackers throughout the pandemic. We've started to see some reactionary efforts to protect against these, you know, these threats that exist. But I would say that we need to do better as a community protecting against remote access attacks and the, the remote worker, especially when you have bring your own devices and now you're bringing your own device, you're connecting it to a remote network through a VPN. You don't know if your kid's playing on that laptop and maybe they download something that gives access. So there's there's a lot of stuff with that side of having a device at home. And then just logging into your, your corporate network, you might have a perfectly secure system, but if your credentials get reused or they're leaked through the uh, the dark web in some way, an attacker can get in. You know, I, to that end, I would you know obviously recommend compensating controls like multi-factor be applied to some sort of remote access. You know, prevent those basic attacks from occurring. And companies really need to recognize that you know em- many employees may return, but the reality is, to Kyle's point, we're not going to shift fully back, right? And so we need to start building the security models around understanding that you're, that a large portion of employees are going to be remote, getting visibility into those users' workstations, understand what your data flows are, you know, generally positioning yourself to protect, to protect workstations that you know, aren't going to be in, you know, sort of in the four walls of whatever corporate headquarters might be, right? And, and I, don't, I think a lot of folks just didn't recognize that. We, we talked to people who simply couldn't, we had systems configured to collect patches from you know, on-prem servers when none of their hosts ever came back to the office. And so you had organizations that probably had decent security practices in place that just sort of fell apart once their workforce went remote. So you, and you really need to think through how you're protecting the data, how you're protecting your, your sort of mobile or your remote workforce, really in a different format. And, and a lot of companies just have not done that. Well, I'm wondering if we can put ourselves in the shoes of a software engineer, someone who's technically proficient, probably has the best intentions of pushing features out there, uh, maybe some goals of getting their code to be beautiful and stuff like that. They're not against security, but they're not a security professional. What types of mistakes does a person like that tend to make that might be avoidable? Oof. So there's a lot to unpack there. So I I would say... The basic vulnerabilities that we've seen for the past 20 years are still appearing in code today and kind of SQL injection, your cross-site scripting, cross-site request forgeries, a lot of web attacks predominantly because you know that, that's externally facing from an environment, you're going to see that. But any any hosted service, memory corruption, and honestly, there's there's the same attacks are repeated over and over and over. And I think it's because we've we've not kind of focused on security 
from a software development standpoint. And I really do think security needs to be more forefront in developers' minds. And you're starting to see a turn toward this, even, even at the, the programming language level. So we're seeing Rust and Go have compiler level and support for memory safety, for type safety, thread safety. And these things are preventing some of the attacks that we've seen historically, but it it doesn't stop everything. We're still having those low-hanging, you know, SQL injection attacks all across the net. And I, I've seen recent code myself when I was doing reviews where a naive developer has best intentions. They want to accept a file, process it, and they pass it off to a system shell without handling the input for standardization. So now I have direct access to that machine, can run anything as the the account that I'm working on. So in terms of developers, it, it's the same problems. And you'll, you'll even see this in the GitHub's AI system that they just released, the, the code pilot. If you go through some of the examples, it generates code with these errors in them and with the same problems. So bringing in an understanding and a knowledge of these problems, I think really comes back to like software software development and computer science education. It needs to really kind of be a forefront of a developer's mind. Even if other developers, you know, the, the people who are smarter than myself de- designing these languages are trying to put the safety me- mechanisms in place, they're not going to be able to stop everything. So Russ, we, we sometimes get folks saying, well, I don't, I don't want to implement security controls because it, it slows things down, right? Whatever, however you want to interpret that that statement, you know, or, or the, you know, security is an impediment to, you know, sort of the business practices, the business process that we put into place. Is there, I mean, is there any reasonable argument to be made that in software or application development, you're implementing security security controls or, you know, doing input validation and things like that, you know, substantively slows the process or, or, or is that just, you know, is that something you just debunk? So there, there are cases depending on your data sets where things will be slowed down for sure. But I would say it's probably less often and less severe than most people would assume. It's one of those don't optimize before the problem is solved. So there is a case for it, but I would say solve the problem try to do it the best way possible, review it. And if you need to take some optimization, then apply it. I, for example, I had, I had a colleague who at one point did not want to enable full disk encryption because they claimed it would slow down their computer until I showed them that the speed of the, the co-processor doing the decryption was faster than their disk's read-write access. And they're like, oh, okay, I understand now. So there's definitely places where you might have to deal with that as a contention, but I would say generally that's not the case. You should probably try to be doing the correct validation when you need to be doing that validation. Where do you think the impetus should that should come from from for that in an organization? Is this top down that you need executives um, really trumpeting the security first principles, or should you hire and take a bottoms up approach? So I think it's. Our kind of internal philosophy is security is everyone's responsibility. And I think from a development standpoint, that remains the same. So your executives and your high ups, they should probably care about security, 
But the reason that they care is most likely the bottom line that they're trying to optimize. Your developers should care about security because the cost and time that they're going to spend addressing issues is going to be you know, painful for them. Across the board, though, I'd say you, you probably, if you're going through an iterative development process and you want to, you know, you're releasing some software, you have your, your core development team who is focused primarily on the application logic and any, any code that you're dealing with, then you'd probably have a separate security team if you're really having a robust review process. And at that code review, you have someone who is specifically looking for these security issues. They might not necessarily fix them. They might pass them back to the original developers and you know, kind of inform them about what's going on. But it's, it's all the way through the, the chain of employees. It, everyone kind of needs to have their hand in it at some point and be aware of what they're doing. And I do think it's reasonable to expect that your senior leadership does create a culture that is security focused, because I think, you know, if 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 not, you're then going to have likely a culture that's prioritizing your output over security, for example. And sure, maybe for, for some applications, it's fine just to bang something out quick. But in reality, you need to build things that are secure. You need to protect the data. Uh, I think that is seniors leadership, executive leadership intend, you know, it should be their intention to promote security as a core component of what they do, you know, not as an impediment to other things, but certainly as a component. And I think that kind of Jason's statement about not being an impediment, security, you can always do something else. You can always add another layer of security. You can always add something else in there. Security should probably be balanced against the threat that you're either expecting or observing out in the wild. You don't need to make Fort Knox for everything. Your you know, personal blog with pictures of your pets or your kids, you don't need to have it necessarily even hosted on an SSL encrypted website. It, it could just be HTTP. There's a range of where I would apply different security controls because ultimately the security should match what you're trying to defend. When you're helping clients, how much of that work is proactive versus reactive? Uh, from my side, I wish it were more proactive. I'd say there's a decent split right now. What would you say, Jason? Like 40, 60? Yeah, something like that. I mean, it might, honestly, it might almost be you know, half and half, it, but you know, it's probably for different reasons. So I'd say we have a, a large group of clients that have you know, to your point earlier, Kyle, you know, regulatory or, or compliance driven initiatives that they're sort of working towards. And, you know, that that really does help with the proactive approach. Uh, we're also seeing some legislation now. So, for example, you know, in Connecticut, which is where we are, there, there's a recent bill that was passed that uh, gave safe harbor against legal action for companies that had an incident or a breach, but had adhered to a security standard. So there are some incentives that, you know, some states and some, you know, legislation puts in place to helpfully, to hopefully incentivize people to be more proactive. So it's not just purely compliance driven, but certainly, you know, uh, we have, we deal with a lot of incident response and that's not to say that, that every company that we do incident response work for has, you know, totally ignored security. The reality is you know, everybody is on the defensive. A motivated attacker 
is going to get access if they're persistent enough. Uh, but I will honestly say most of the time that do we do incident response, it's because of some pretty basic things that were just overlooked or not attended to. What are some of the biggest gaffes? If there was a first step, a company should double check they've secured. Uh, what do you see as the biggest wide open front door? So, so certainly, right, we mentioned it multiple times. You know, basic patch management is is one real significant problem that we see, and we see it all the time. Yeah, there's maybe a couple of reasons for that. And in, in some cases, you definitely have applications that require your older operating systems that, you know, you, you, in the worst case, might be end of life. Those are real challenges. Companies certainly can put compensating controls in, but, you know, that exists. In a way, more egregious are, you know, companies that simply have loose operational practices and don't routinely patch. And I think you're really, at that point, you're really placing yourself at risk unnecessarily because they're, they're very addressable problems. I think your television always portrays these attacks as incredibly sophisticated and, and creative when, in fact, they're kind of pedestrian and boring. And you're not to say passion cures all woes, but boy, it's a step in the right direction. And we just don't see enough of that. I don't know, Russ, if you want to if you want to add anything, anything to that. Yeah. So if you wanted to have low hanging fruit to kind of protect the environment and shore things up, I would say review your firewalls, review your uh, perimeter. If you're going to get in through phishing, then, you know, that's a personnel issue. And, you know, people people aren't patchable. You can teach them, but you can't guarantee them. I would say go through, make sure if you have end-of-life systems, we see a lot of end-of-life Windows servers hanging out in a DMZ and they get attacked. Just go through and do due diligence. See what ports are accessible to the internet at large. See what services are running. If you have custom software sitting there that hasn't been touched in a few years, decide if it's actually necessary to be out there. If you're running you know, Apache, Nginx, uh, HTTPD, update, make sure you're running the most up-to-date version, security patches. All of these kind of, the, the things we've, we've harped on quite a bit, I, I would say, in this discussion, it's, it's that patching, but it, for low-hanging fruit, it's that perimeter. It's make sure, you're, make sure your, your external firewalls have the correct rules in place, make sure your logging is turned on on those devices. And I would say, make sure your logging is turned on on any device that you consider to be of importance, because if you do get attacked, you're gonna want those logs for both review and for assurance that things haven't been touched. But do your review of the, the firewall, do your review of systems that are passed through that firewall and just kind of sure up that perimeter point and then start working on your internals and your you know personnel you know, the, the last thing that comes to mind for me is, and I, I think you're absolutely right in terms of your employee education. And, and But the reason I kind of want to bring that up a little bit is, you know, how many companies have we seen that have pretty quality technical controls in place that are subverted because somebody succumbed to a basic phishing email, right? And then ultimately provided their credentials. And credential management is a weakness we see all the time, either, you know, Password policies that are just incredibly lax, so you have you know, very guessable policies uh, or very guessable passwords. Uh, maybe no two-factor in place, or certainly not two-factor for critical applications. Managing and protecting credential is really important. And you know, the typical attack progression that we see is attacker gets access somehow. Right? I'll be very general here. Is able to get 
even an unprivileged credential, but then has access to be able to move around the network and ultimately elevate those privileges or, or, or collect additional credentials, ultimately giving them, you know, administrative access. And, you know, that really basic sort of flow is very consistent in a lot of these attacks and being, you know, being more mindful of password management practices would, would really improve the security for a lot of companies. Great advice all around. I think adopting a lot of those as a policy would strengthen the security of an organization. They're all kind of defensive moves in that regard. I also might want to spend some of my time doing intrusion detection. Do you have any thoughts on a healthy balance of how I split my time? I think my answer to that would be, for for a lot of companies, just collecting the logs and you know, reviewing them periodically would be a real step in the right direction. I'd say in, in, with incident response, for in every single instance that we've done any, I think there might be one customer that we would say, hey, they had pretty quality data that we were able to review that gave us a historic perspective of what that attack looked like. In most cases, organizations aren't collecting logs and they're doing, you know, on top of that, they're of course doing almost no review. It, it, and, and this being in the landscape of you know, incredible success from the log sort of collection and review companies, right? There, there's a lot of companies out there that really specialize in this, and I think there's interest in it. But even where they're deployed, we typically see huge gaps in the data, or somebody hasn't assigned and has not assigned an individual who's responsible for reviewing that. So it's certainly valuable to be able to go through and do that intrusion detecting type activity. But it needs to be staffed appropriately, and there needs to be an understanding that you know it's not the silver bullet, and walk before you run. So, judiciously select what those logs are going to be, understand what is what you're looking at, so you're not constantly going down sort of rabbit holes after false positives, and sort of build it such that your your analysts don't get alert fatigue because we see that all the time as well, right? Companies, they, they, they sort of fall in two spectrums. They either don't do anything or they buy this robust platform that overloads them with alerts and ultimately they don't pay attention to them, which is you know, arguably almost the same thing as not doing anything. So you've got to find that, that sort of middle ground that makes sense for your organization, right? The same thing that Russ was talking about before, you know, security commensurate with risk. Build it in a way that you can actually manage it and get value from it, uh, rather than either you know doing nothing or building it in such a way that you, that it just sort of makes itself almost obsolete through the noise it creates. Well, let's imagine a, a mid-market company thinking about their security posture. Uh, let's assume they've got some data, but you know not like HIPAA data, uh, so there's nothing too compliant about it. But even if you're selling pizza, you owe it to your customers to be good stewards of their data. Uh, let's assume they've got some IT staff, but no dedicated security professional. And they're starting to think, should we add a headcount for this or do we find a vendor? What are some of the key considerations in making that decision? So I think you know, certainly cost is going to be one. We've had a lot of success with what we call our virtual information security, virtual information security office offering. And we try to structure that a little bit differently. It, you know, a lot of times that we'll see sort of that, you know, that that external partner being positioned as a security group or person. It's an individual assigned to a company, and with that, 
you sort of get whatever experience that person brings to bear, right? So let's sort of be clear about it. If if I were working for a client as their sort of external security person, if they had application security questions, frankly, I'm not really best equipped to answer that, right? That would really be best for Russ. So in our model, we sort of bring the experience of the entire team to bear uh, to make sure that sort of any any aspect of security can potentially be addressed. So the nice thing about partnering with an organization is you do potentially get access to a lot of experience that you might not get from hiring an individual who's responsible for security, right? Because you're going to be limited to whatever their core competence might be. I think a lot of mid-sized businesses can really benefit by having, in, in essence, external security counsel helping to guide those sort of internal operational practices. And I think that that's been a nice that's been a nice middle ground that we've seen. Budget, of course, you know, is of course a component of it. I do think in regulated environments, having a, a designated CISO is really beneficial. But in most cases, I would say companies really just need guidance. They need assistance with policy development. They need a sounding board as they're trying to make institutional decisions. They need somebody with experience to be able to say, you know, these are the things I've seen work in the past. These are the things I haven't seen work in the past. This is where your organization might fit with that. So, you know, enterprise typically hires mid-market very often relies on an external partner. And I think it's finding one you trust is the most important part. And when people are finding you, are they typically thinking about the future and planning or are you often brought in in media res during an incident? So there's no doubt that incident response has been a great way to find clients. And I don't mean to say that tongue-in-cheek in any way. You know, customer acquisition and building that trust, it takes time. During an incident, that time is reduced from potentially months to hours. And so... You know, if you're if you're if you're finding a partner reactively and you're lucky enough to get somebody who's got sort of good qualifications, you you could potentially really short circuit that that initial process, right? Looking for the right vendor, it's worth doing that proactively. It's worth interviewing a variety of companies. You know, fit makes a difference. Not every company has the same set of capabilities. You know, some might be very specific uh, in that they focus maybe on, you know, application security or network security. Some are going to be broader and sort of have a wide range of folks that they can bring to bear. And I think you just need to figure out, you know, what are your priorities? Uh, what are you looking to address and trying to find a company that actually meets those needs? Whenever I hear about a new zero-day exploit, I find it kind of terrifying because it implies that even if you've done all the patching and all of that, you're still exposed. I mean, that's intrinsically true, but how much of a threat is that really? Should I stay up at night worried about zero days? I mean, I do, but you know, that's for totally different reasons. So no, uh, ultimately, do your due diligence. If you, if you expose something that has a zero day, maybe you care a little bit more, but you'll see a lot of things like Spectre and Meltdown yeah, there were terrible attacks. Uh, there, there's a lot of hardware-based attacks. We don't really see them being used because they're so specialized. Sure, they're out there, and I'm, I'm not saying that they're they're not things you need to ignore, and you're not you can just kind of toss aside. But if again, it goes back to that secure to the the degree of what you're trying to protect. If you're the federal government, if you're if you're a you know large entity and you have something super sensitive, 
maybe you need to be a little bit more concerned about that, but you probably have a security a security engineer who is up at night worrying about the zero days that are that are popping up. And you know, every day I do see something pop up in my feed and I say, oh no, I need to check whether X, Y, or Z customer has that. But ultimately for day-to-day technical people, I would say do that due diligence and you know, you know, read about the zero days because they're they're interesting, especially to me. But I say in general towards the tech community, zero days can be informative about what people are researching currently and what kind of attacks are being used. Well, and I think, you know, I think it's also important, Russ, that companies look for threat intelligence information and, and read it regularly. So, you know, ideally, you're never in a position where you, you, you have a zero day that impacts you, but the reality is you will. And what you don't want is for the for an issue like that to occur and not know about it for a month and then take another month to react to it, right? You, you really want to at least be current with the threat intelligence that out there and then have the discussions to figure out, you know, what should your response be and what level of urgency do you need to address it? You know, it, it is all about simply, you know, balancing, again, your risk with the, with the potential reality of getting attacked. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you are staying up at night, you don't have to, but you can, you can certainly check your email in the morning. Well, I'm not an expert in this, but when I think of a physical bank getting robbed, rarely do I think of a situation where the bank made a bunch of gaffes. It's usually some hardened criminals who came in with guns and uh, really took advantage of a situation. On the digital side, when you hear about a major incident hitting the news, uh, what's your response? Do you think, oh, that company was uh, laxed in security, or is this just uh, the times and everyone's vulnerable? Both. Yeah, I, I, I would echo that. I think there's a lot of there is a lot of organized cybercrime. There is a a massive amount of nation state activity, but at the same time, there's a lot of opportunistic people who just happen to see something and you know they go in and grab it. It's all over the board. Well, and, and you know, and it's easy in the I'll call it the, the physical space, right? So in the, in the in the example you just used, I think of the I think of the Wild West, right? Somebody rides up and you know, shoots their way in. But it's, you can look at a building and you can say, well, we put a fence around that building to protect it. And hey, look over there, there's a hole in the fence. And it's, it's really obvious. I think that the interrelationships of technology, it's, it can be really challenging to sort of build that mental picture of, you know, where are, where are my vulnerabilities? Where are, where are my gaps? And so it is easy to overlook when you have 500 servers, you know, many of which might be exposed to the internet all potentially in varying states of sort of you know patch or support or maintenance to know really where your risks are. You know, good companies do it well. Frankly, most organizations do the best they can and overlook some things. And so, and I, and I think that's probably why we both reacted with you know a little bit of you know we, we kind of see both sides to some degree. It's it's it is challenging to keep up with all of the sort of vulnerabilities that exist or, you know, securing every system appropriately through the firewall and with all the, you know, all the other sort of controls that might exist. In some ways, it's easier to deal with certain physical security things. And, and I think part of that is simply because you can see them. And, and that is really where we go a lot. And I, I really like the, the, the analogy there of the fence because the zero day is kind of a good example of, if you use that analogy, 
your fence isn't going to disappear because you look at it from a slightly different angle. So you could have software that is rock solid until some researcher finds some exploit in it. And now there's a big hole in that fence or there's a gap there. Your fence is going to rust out at the rate that it does. And you're going to replace it when you need to. You're going to be well aware of these things ahead of time. Right. And you, you know, and, and again, right, you could look at it and say, hey, for my house, I'm okay with a four foot fence that you know, keeps the neighbor's dog out. For a bank, you want an eight-foot fence with your razor wire and maybe you know some cameras, and it, it's it's a little easier, and it and it does somehow feel a little bit more straightforward to build security around a physical location. And it, and certainly, I don't want to I don't want to make that sound trivial because I know a lot goes into it, but there is a tangibility or or physicality to it that I think is different than trying to do everything from a, an electronic standpoint with data moving everywhere. Well, cybersecurity in general is a very important contemporary topic. I've been tuning into Vancord's CyberSound podcast. Can you tell listeners a little bit about the types of content you get into there? Ah, that's great. I appreciate bringing that up, and I, and I actually hope you you found some of those episodes interesting. The you know the intent for us really was to build a podcast that is geared more toward that midsize business owner, more so probably even than the, the traditional security practitioner. I think there's a lot of great podcasts out there that focus on, you know, that's delivered by and delivered for security practitioners. And our goal really is to try and make some of these security challenges a little bit more accessible to people who don't live and breathe security every day. So we talk about things like, you know, cyber liability insurance and you know, why you might need it and what some of the pros and cons might be. We'll talk about protecting a remote workforce right during a transition like we've just seen. So it really is geared toward, I hope, you know, pragmatic solutions to some of the challenges that that we kind of see organizations facing every day. Anything you want to add before we sign off? This was pretty comprehensive. I you know I, I would want to end, I think, by simply advocating for companies to be proactive about the, their about security. And you know, that can range from simply reviewing and making sure you're passing to, you know, sort of, you know, more mature decisions around, you know, certain hardware products and, and implementations that are a little bit more specific. But if you wait until an incident and you haven't given thought to things as basic as, you know, is your data backed up? Is your data backed up and offline in some format, right? What's your capability of restoring? Things are just much more difficult. If you're not confident that you've got your data well protected uh, at a bare minimum. Uh, I would encourage anybody listening to reach out you know, to somebody who could help with that. Because ultimately, you know, the genesis or, or sort of the desire for these attacker is business interruption uh, and ultimately extortion. That kind of lends itself to you know, encrypting data or stealing data. You need to protect that. So if you're not confident that you could restore in the event of attack, even if you're not confident that your security is great, Give somebody a call and start looking at backups. I, I don't know that we spent a ton of time there, and I think that's a really important topic. Good advice, absolutely. Well, Jason and Russell, thank you both so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Kyle. Thank you. Thanks for having us.